Let's turn in our Bibles now to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. The last two weeks we spent looking at outreach, local and international, and how God is using the church, and then this week we get back into our study of the Gospel of Mark. So if you did miss one of those studies, I'd encourage you to go back and pick them up on the church's website. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that it's steadfast, that it's unending. We take a moment to draw near to you, to give our hearts afresh to you. Maybe you've got things that are weighing on your heart that you come in pressed upon this morning. Just give that over to the Lord. Take a moment to offer your own thanksgiving to him. Father, as your children, we declare great is your faithfulness that your mercies are new every morning. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to value what is the greatest, especially when it comes to athletics. We oftentimes have this discussion of who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Who's the greatest quarterback of of all time? And there'll always be this argument uh, among that. How about of God's commands, of God's commandments, What's the greatest? Is there one that stands out from all the things that God asks of us? And in fact, Jesus is going to tell us this is the great commandment. This one commandment sums up all of the other commandments. You probably know it's love. That's the greatest commandment, to love God with everything, to love your neighbor as yourself. It was about a year and a half ago. I was painting our basement on a day off a room in our basement, and I got a call from my mom, and she said that my dad was having a particular tough day. They live up in, in South Denver, having stroke-like symptoms that they were headed to the emergency room. So I got in the car and, and drove to, to South Denver, and I was very concerned about my dad. And as I was driving and listening to worship music, I was thinking about and meditating on all of the ways that my dad had invested in me growing up. And I really believe the Holy Spirit was in, in that moment because I, I was remembering times of being in the garage as a young child and my dad teaching me how to dribble a, a basketball and how, how fun that was and how enjoyable that was. All the times that we had wrestling. I've got an older brother and a younger sister. And so my dad and I and, and my brother wrestle all the time, like WWF every day. And, Dad would pin us down with his knees on our, on our biceps and then put his chin on our chest and give us that chin rub and then you'd laugh until you cry and beg for mercy and all those types of things. Uh, to getting a little bit older and reflecting on my dad being at all my basketball games, I don't think him or my mom missed a, a basketball game and looking up into the stands. No matter how old you are, even if you're a junior or senior in high school, you're always you know, catching a glimpse up into the stands if mom and dad are, are there but you don't want them to catch you looking, right? You know, because, but it means something to you. And what really stood out to me as I was reflecting on this is love. That, that my dad got it right, you know? Not that he's perfect, but that he loved us with God's love. Wouldn't you guess on that Wednesday, that was a Monday or a Tuesday, what section of scripture I was teaching on? On Wednesday nights, we go through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter, God's definition of love. 
God was trying to speak to my heart and move me to love in a greater way through the power of his Holy Spirit. For many of us this morning, as we read this section of scripture, it's a commandment that you know. You maybe even can recite it by heart, but this really is what God is after, is that we would love, that we would love him and that we would love others. And so may God move us to that place where we get the one thing right, the greatest commandment to love correctly. So join me in verse 28. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? The context is this is the final week of Christ leading up to his crucifixion. Christ came into the temple, cleansed the temple, turned over the tables. Then he would come again each day to visit the temple, go outside of the city to Bethany and come back into Jerusalem during the day. What would happen is then there was an entourage of people that were coming to question Christ, to try to entrap him in his words, to build to the plot of his crucifixion. If you remember in chapter 12, the first was the Pharisee, and then the second was the Sadducee, and here's the third, the scribe. The scribe's going to come with his question to try to entrap Jesus. The scribes were the ones that were given the task of transmitting the word of God. They would copy the word of God, making the scrolls. They'd given their life to the dedication of God's word. It makes sense that he would ask a question from the word of God. Also, the scribes have great authority, and he says, which is the first commandment of all, or what is the greatest commandment of all? In the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses, there's 613 commands. Of these 613 commands, there's 365 that are negative and 245 that are positive. Like you really wanted to know that, right? But 365 telling you what not to do, 248 telling you what you should do. Aren't you thankful this morning that God boiled it down to one commandment? All of these commands are encompassed in Christ's answer. Jesus answered him and said, the first commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The nation of Israel refers to this section as the Shema. To this day, devout Jews will quote it, recite it in the morning and the evening. It's the central passage for them. And Christ says, first of all, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first is, is we have a commandment to hear. God says, hear this commandment. I want you to pay attention to it. God is one. We don't serve three gods. We serve one, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, distinct persons, but yet one God, the Trinity. And here's the instruction, you shall love God with all of your heart. There's an emphasis on all. God wants all of our hearts. Our heart is our control center. I think that there's an order that builds in the great commandment. There's a reason that the heart comes before the mind that the heart comes before the body. Because when your heart, your passion, is into something, your mind is going to follow. Your mind gets engaged in something that has grabbed your attention. And so God has always been after our heart. 
Do you know that first and foremost, God's not concerned with your Bible reading? He's not concerned that you're religious about your devotions? Or he's not concerned first and foremost with your morality and your decision making? You're like, where is this going? He's not concerned first and foremost with your giving, writing out a check and your tithe and your offering. You know what God's interested first and foremost is your heart. He wants your love. Love the Lord with all of your heart. Because when our heart is loving the Lord, then Bible reading's meaningful. Then living a godly life is coming out of a heart and life that's touched by the Lord. Giving is an expression of love. How easy is it to get off track with that? We, we lose sight of the love. We, we lose sight of making sure that we're passionate about the Lord. For those of you that are married or dating or would like to be married, as we think about Valentine's Day this week, what do you hope for in a marriage relationship? What do you look for in a marriage relationship? Is you want there to be heart. You want there to be passion. Yes, you want there to be morality. Yes, you want there to be commitment to each other. But inside of that commitment to each other, hopefully there's some pursuing that is taking place. There's heart that's involved in the midst of this. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence because out of it flows the issues of life. The tendency of our flesh in this world will cause us to drift from a love for God. We all at different times of our lives go, man, this is a season where I know that I was loving the Lord. This is a time where I struggled in my relationship with God. The church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes them a letter and he gives them commendation. He says, you're wonderful in your doctrine. You're wonderful in your works. This church was active in their community, but he says, nevertheless, I've got something against you. You have left your first love. If you don't repent and redo the first works, I'm going to remove your candlestick. Now, if I were surveying churches, I'd say, you know, I would take a church that's sound in its doctrine. I would take a church that's effectively reaching out to your community. Even with those things in place, Christ is not interested in having a loveless church. A church that's not loving him. And he says, I want you to come back to that place of your first love. Go back to those things that you were first doing when God got a hold of your heart. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You go, man, this is so simple, but yet somehow I've been missing it. I really haven't been loving the Lord from my heart. Or you are loving God from your heart. Then continue in that. Continue pressing in and say, I always want to grow in loving the Lord. Every day I want it to be expression of loving God from my heart. And from there it says to then love God with all of your soul. Well, what's the soul? The Bible refers a lot to the soul. The soul's the inner person. The mind, the emotions, the will, even though the mind is divided out from there, it's all the part of us that we can't see. God says the soul can be enticed, that the soul needs to be refreshed. The psalmist often speaks to his soul, to his inner person, and says, come on, soul, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Saying, soul, don't be a whiner, don't be a complainer, but choose to bless the Lord. Don't forget all of his benefits. And so from our inner person, our love is our passion, but our soul is our inner person, our emotion and our will, expressing that to the Lord and saying, God, I want to love you with all of my soul. 
Then we find all your mind. See the progression? My heart is connecting with God. My soul is loving God. And now my mind is committed to loving the Lord with what you think about. The Bible tells us of take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Philippians 4 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate upon these things. Right now, you're loving God with your mind. You decided to get up and be here and worship the Lord, and in singing to him, your mind is reflecting upon God. We're reading God's word together and our thoughts are, are going upon the Lord. And throughout our days going, God, is what I'm thinking about honoring to you? And if it's not, then I want to take that captive and meditate on the things that glorify the Lord. I believe that discipline leads to more discipline in our lives. Have you experienced that? Like if you start loving God with your mind a little bit, that's going to eventually multiply to loving God with your mind a bit more. And then you go a little further and now you go, wow, I'm loving God with my mind more than I ever thought possible. But you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere and say, I'm choosing to love God with my thoughts. Man, this song doesn't glorify the Lord. It's leading my thoughts in a sinful direction. I'm, I'm going to turn it off. Man, this, this show is definitely not leading me to think about things that are praiseworthy. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and turn, turn that off. Not because I'm some kind of legalistic jerk but because I want to love God with my mind. And then maybe put some things in there that are going to fuel thoughts about the Lord. Listen to podcasts of teaching. Listen to the word of God uh, being read out loud. Read God's word. Memorize God's word. All with that discipline of saying, God, I'm going to love you with my mind. Your mind is a beautiful thing. You have a beautiful mind, the capacity of the mind. And to have those pathways in our mind honoring and glorifying the Lord. Then all your strength, what does that mean? all your bodily power. God, with my bodily power, my body, I want to love you today. I want you to be glorified in every part of my being. Where could we possibly start with this? How would we monitor where our love is at? How do I know if I'm loving God with my heart? Listen to the words of our mouth. Because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So what I'm saying with my words reveals with the condition of my heart. I want to encourage you in this, that this great commandment is not given to us to earn or deserve salvation. Aren't you thankful for that? God's not saying, love me with everything, then you'll be saved. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus died for us while we were sinners. We're saved by grace. We're saved by his sacrifice upon the cross, believing in him. And that moment we believed in him, we were fully forgiven, fully saved. It's not conditional on us following the great commandment. We get to respond to his grace by choosing to love him in this way. We're already accepted. We're already forgiven. And we get to then walk in that love relationship. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I think the most healthy marriages exist under unconditional love and acceptance. It's not like I've got to be a good boy to earn my wife's affection. Ladies, you go, I've got to be a good gal to earn my husband's commitment. There's that acceptance, strengths and weaknesses and failures. I love you because God has loved me. And then inside of that unconditional love, we get to respond to, to one another. God's unconditionally loved you, and we get to respond by loving him. God's most glorified when we love him. 
And we're most edified when we love him. Loving him is the best thing for me. It's the best thing for you. Verse 31, and the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus says, the second is like unto the first, meaning that we begin to love others as we love the Lord. We have to love the Lord first. We have to begin to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then we'll have the capacity to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we make it our goal to love our neighbor without loving God, we're not going to have the source of love. What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? It's a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18. I've talked with several over the years that have expressed this sentiment to me. I really can't start loving my neighbor because I haven't learned to love myself. Now, do you think that what, that's what Jesus is teaching us in this verse? In fact, he's teaching us the exact opposite. He's trying to get us to not focus on ourselves. What he's really saying is you already focus on yourself. You already care for yourself. And so the way that you care for yourself, care for your neighbor in that way. And I'm not saying that you don't need to pay attention to your own needs. But as you care for yourself, then care for your neighbor. Do you make sure that you eat every day? Absolutely. Do you make sure you sleep every day? Absolutely. What do I make sure happens when I wake up first thing in the morning? That coffee is flowing my way. I'm very good at making sure that that need is is met. In fact, I, I spend a lot of time going through the day thinking about my needs and fulfilling those needs. And so, so what God is saying is saying, Eric, in the way that you care for yourself, now care for your neighbor in that way. Who's your neighbor? Whoever you're in close proximity to. If you're single and you have roommates, that's your neighbor. You're married, you've got kids, your spouse and kids are your neighbor. Your neighbor is the person that lives next to you in the apartment or across the street in a home, but it's every person who's in clock close proximity, the person next to us at the grocery store, your coworker that you're around many hours of the week. Yes, the people that drive with us and next to us and sometimes against us on I-25, Powers Boulevard, Academy Boulevard, right? Every person that we come in contact with that we're in close proximity to, to love them and to care for them as ourselves. We need to be careful with the deception of self-worship and self-love. This idea of, well, I am so miserable, I'm such a failure, is still a trap of self-love because who are you focused on when you're condemning yourself? Myself. I'm still focused on myself. I can go through my days looking at my shoes going, I'm a miserable wretch. I'm such a mess Why would anybody love me? Why would God love me? And at the end of the day, I have said me 10,000 times. We live in a culture that says, love yourself. It's all about you. And so this is going to be an offense to you. Some of you, as you're hearing me say this, go, I don't know if this is quite right. Don't fall in love with yourself. Fall in love with God. And fall in love with your neighbor. And say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and exist to build them up, not just caring for my own needs. What's the greatest way to be discouraged today? Think about yourself. 
you'll be discouraged. What's the greatest way to joy? Think about God and to think about others. One other thing I think we need to talk about before we go on to the next verse is the definition of love. Because those that don't know the Lord, the world system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life has a definition of love as well. Culture right now is really pushing love, isn't it? But that love's definition is really one of anything goes. Well, let's see how that plays out. If to love my neighbor means that anything goes, then let's apply that to my kids. Cleaning chemicals underneath the kitchen sink. What if they have a great attraction to these cleaning chemicals? And they want to take the bleach and mix it with their lemonade. Go for it because I love you. And love means anything goes. So I'm going to just let you experience with the bleach and mix it in with the lemonade. You go, you're crazy. You need to be locked up, you know? People lose parental rights for stuff like that. So to love somebody isn't anything goes, but to love them is according to who God is and what his word teaches. Agreed? Amen, right? And so we have to accept God's definition of love in loving our neighbor as ourself. We go on into verse 32. So the scribes said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there's no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> He's close. This statement by Jesus probably perked his interest. Oh, I'm not far from the kingdom of God. I wonder what it would take to get into the kingdom of God. What if he never chooses to trust Christ as his savior? What if he never enters into the kingdom of God? I'm sure there's some today where you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not an atheist. In fact, you believe that Jesus is God. You understand that you're a sinner. You even believe that Jesus died for your sin. But yet, there's something inside of you that hasn't yet received, that hasn't yet applied it to your account. You agree in the importance of loving God and loving others. And Jesus would say to you, oh, you're not far from the kingdom. What are you waiting for? May today be the day of salvation. How tragic it would be to be close to the kingdom of God, but yet not enter into the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Here we've had these rounds, these entourages of people, Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, trying to catch Jesus in his words, no one can do it. Part of what's happening here is Christ is at the temple being inspected as the pure and spotless lamb. The lamb would be brought to the temple to ensure that it was a pure sacrifice. The enemies of Jesus are inspecting him to prove, in fact, that he is the perfect sacrifice, that he is the pure and spotless lamb. I hope you get this, and this light bulb goes on, is God is love, and he is loving us with the sacrifice of his son. Jesus is stepping into the cross, and in that moment, he's encouraging us to love God and love our neighbor. In verse 35, Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple. I love this. This speaks volumes to me. 
Christ is teaching at the end of his life. And he's teaching where? He's teaching in the lion's den amongst those that are trying to kill him. He's at the temple and he's teaching and he's asking questions. He's seizing every moment to pass on truth. He says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of God? The common teaching was that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of God. So far we've seen a commandment to hear and now we see Messiah to worship. The word Christ means Messiah. The Messiah is the son of David, meaning that he's coming through the descendant of David. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Quote from Psalms 110. This can be a confusing verse. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 37 helps. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So we have a conversation between the father and the son. The father is speaking to the son, saying, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You're going to allow your feet to rest upon your enemies. But in the midst of that, we find David saying to Jesus, That Jesus is his Lord. So Christ's question then is how could David do this? The Lord himself, then David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The answer is the incarnation. The incarnation. God becoming human flesh. And in doing that, he becomes the son of David. Of the lineage of David. But yet he's also God. And as God, he's David's Lord. At the end of verse 37, and the common people heard him gladly. Don't you love this? Common people, everyday people, hardworking people, they love to hear Jesus. They could understand what Jesus was talking about. Jesus came for sinners, and he communicates his love to sinners. Jesus spoke in parables and things that they could understand and enter into. A Messiah to worship. We pause and we go, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're God in human flesh. Now there's a warning to heed in verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace. So he has just gotten done talking to a scribe and now he says, guys, here's a warning to heed. Don't be like the scribes because... The scribes go around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplace. This whole passage connects into the great commandment. Jesus has said, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Part of loving God, a huge part of loving God, is understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. We love God by trusting in who he is. Now we get an example of someone who's not loving God. Someone who's loving themselves. Instead of loving others, it's the scribes. And the way that they dressed was to draw attention to themselves. Only the scribes got these long robes. So now that they could walk through Walmart and, here comes the scribe. No one can miss me. I want to be recognized. And so they're living for recognition. We have to be careful for this. This comes out of love for self. We have a desperate desire to be recognized that needs to be crucified 
to the cross with Christ. How do we know this? What happens when you do the dishes and clean the kitchen, unload the dishwasher, wipe down the counters? You are waiting for somebody in your home to say, thank you. Thank you for unloading the dishes. Thank you for cleaning the kitchen. I mean, even in fact, part of the motivation is that our spouse would see it and recognize it. If they don't, we're holding it in, we're holding it in, we're holding it in, but eventually, at some point during the day, we say, hey, did you notice that I unloaded the dishwasher and I cleaned the kitchen? Why? Because we want to be recognized. Think about it in your workplace. If you work hard, you go to work on time, you show up early, sometimes you stay late, you've got a good work ethic, good attitude towards your boss, you know that you're part of what is making that company effective, you want recognition. What if it comes down to review time and there is no recognition and there's only criticism? Yet there's a slouch at work. There's always a slouch at work. And somehow you go to a meeting and he gets complimented all the time. I mean, he's the golden boy. You don't really understand it, but he just walks around with Shekinah glory over his head. (laughs) And the bosses love him. The bosses love her. And and you're going, what in the world is going on here? I need some recognition. Maybe you start working out a little bit and you're getting in shape and starting to know a few changes in your physique. And inside you're going, why doesn't somebody notice You're waiting for that compliment. Haven't you noticed something's changed? You want to be recognized. I've been serving in the church for so long and no one said thank you and I don't think anybody appreciates me. And that's what the scribes fell into. I think they started off well, but eventually they got more concerned with the accolades of men than the praise of God. They forgot who they were serving. We need to do dishes unto the Lord not dishes unto somebody else. We need to work unto the Lord. You're not working for your boss. You're working for the Lord. But see how easily that changes? And we're even doing good things. We're doing the right thing with the wrong motivation. And Jesus says, pay attention, beware. This is something that's so easy to fall into. Verse 39, they also desired the best seats in the synagogue and the best places at the feast. They wanted recognition, but they also wanted position, positions of power, positions of authority. We want the best seat in the synagogue. We want the best places at the feast. We want power over other people. Christ came to serve. He didn't long for these positions of authority. We need to guard our flesh against that. Notice in reality the way they were behaving in verse 40, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So here they are spending all this time in the word of God, wanting praise, wanting position, but they're destroying widows' lives. The very ones that God's people, especially leaders inside of God's church were to be caring for. They're to be looking out for the widow. And so God says they'll receive greater condemnation because they had been given this position of authority in God's word. The last thing that we see in this chapter is an example to follow. We find a woman who is living out the great commandment. She's loving God with everything. But Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. He's just watching people as they're giving their tithe and their offering, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw into in 
and threw in two mites, which made a quadrants. Here comes a widow, one of these ladies that was being taken advantage of by the scribes. And she puts in two mites. The ESV version, the English Standard Version of the Bible says two small copper coins, which make a penny. These were the smallest denominations of coins. So, so two mites make one penny, and she drops it in while the rich are dumping in lots of money. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, here's an opportunity for him to teach his disciples. He draws them close. Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. We learn things about God's perspective from from this verse. First, he sees what man overlooks. Man's not going to be impressed with two mites, but God is. And he sees this woman put in her two mites, put in her whole entire livelihood into this treasury. God does see. I think heaven's reward, God tells us that he's going to reward in heaven, is going to look a lot different than we may think. We think God's going to reward for this great thing. Maybe not, because we were doing it for the wrong motivation. He might do a lot of rewarding for a cup of cold water that is brought to a child in Jesus' name that nobody else sees, that we didn't even think that God sees. He sees. He sees your faithfulness at work. He sees the way that you're loving your neighbor. He sees the two mites that are, that are placed in. Secondly is God's economy is different than man's economy. God not only sees, but he sees things differently. He says, the gift of this two mites means more to me than the rich who are giving out of their abundance. God's not impressed with dollar amounts. Don't we know that? Like God doesn't, isn't in a place of need. He's like, wow, you really helped me out with that offering. I didn't know how it was going to get through the week without you, right? He sees the heart of the gift. He sees the sacrifice of the gift. And even though some of the rich were giving a lot of money, they were giving out of their abundance. There was no sacrifice there. It didn't hurt at all. And it just become part, part of their routine, part of, part of what they did. But here's this woman, and there was sacrifice involved in what she gave. She was living out the great commandment. She was loving from her heart. Don't you value a gift that means something, that there's some sacrifice in the midst of the gift? David was at a point in his life where he numbered God's people. And because of that, a plague came on the children of Israel. People were dying. He was desperate. He wanted to buy a threshing floor to plead with God, to worship with God, that, that God would be merciful and gracious. And he goes to the owner of the field and he says, I want to buy it. And the owner says, no, I'll just give it to you. You're the king. And he says, no, I'm not going to offer to God something that costs me nothing. He understood love. He says, I want there to be sacrifice that's given in my relationship with the Lord. When was the last time maybe we were just so moved with love by God that we offered something that was meaningful to us? Maybe it's some time. We go, God, I'm going to get up a little bit earlier so that I can spend some time with you. So I can be in prayer and I can be in your word. I'm going to stay up a little bit later. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to give you my lunch hour this week. I'm going to make an appointment with you. 
I got you down on the calendar. I'm going to give that, that sacrifice. Maybe in that financial aspect, are we giving out of abundance or are we giving to a place where we go, oh man, that, that hurts a little bit. Maybe in tithe and offering and giving God our first fruits, you go, man, that 10%, that really hurts. That's really tough on the budget. Oh Lord, I'm so happy to do it because I want to give you my first fruits. I, I want to give you what you're due, not my leftovers. Here you go, God, this is my offering unto you. I'm not waiting to see whatever change I've got left over because you've touched my heart. And please, I hope you understand this. This isn't heavy-handed or this isn't legalism. God has died for us. He's risen from the dead. If you trust Christ, he's forgiven you. This is responding out of that love. This is realizing the vastness of his love and saying, Lord, I I want to draw near to you. I want there to be some cost. I want there to be some sacrifice in what I'm giving to you. And even more than the money, what this widow represents is her whole livelihood is in the hands of God. And that's worship. And that's loving God with everything that you have. That this morning we take our hands off of our life and we say, God, my whole being is yours. I'm being a living sacrifice unto you. You have it all. It all belongs to you. And what a beautiful place for us to be. So what are some things that we've seen in our text this morning? We see Jesus as the pure and spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice. No one dared ask him a question. He is perfect, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. We're saved by grace. We're saved by his sacrifice. We get to respond to his sacrifice. So here's the question for us this morning. What and whom am I loving? What and whom am I loving? I'm going to love something, someone. Am I loving myself? Am I loving possessions? Am I loving God? And am I loving my neighbor as myself? As we close in a last song, I want to give you an opportunity to return to the Lord if you've drifted away from him. Even if it's one where you're no longer walking in that first love relationship with the Lord. It wasn't that the church of Ephesus was off the tracks. They weren't out doing all these wicked things. They didn't deny the Lord. They'd simply drifted from their love for God. And you may look at your life and go, man, I'm committed to the word. I'm committed to sound doctrine. I'm I'm committed to, to good works, but I know in my heart I've left my first love. As we worship, come down and ask somebody on the ministry team, would you pray with me? Because I've left my first love. I need to return to my first love. Maybe some of you, you say, you know what? I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm the child of God, but I can't say I've put very much into loving the Lord. I've never taken this commandment as something serious in my life. In fact, I've kind of just taken the grace, taken the forgiveness, and been appreciative, but I can't really say that I've ever put effort into loving the Lord. You come and receive prayer. Say, you know, I I want to love the Lord. I want to love him in a greater way. For some of you, maybe you say, you know, I love the Lord and I am loving him with all my heart, but I could realize I could love him so much more. A lot of times we think there's a ceiling in our relationship with God, that this is as far as we can go. And maybe God wants to blow off the ceiling this morning. I mean, let's all be honest. There's so much love lacking in my life. Love for God and love for others. I would love for God to just blow the ceiling off my life. 
and reconstruct me in a way where I love God more and I love my neighbor as myself. It, it's what it's all about. It all hangs on this. It all hangs on love. And then for some of you, it's that you need to enter the kingdom of God. You need to realize that you're a sinner. Realize that you can't save yourself. You've been close. You've been around the things of God. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family. And this morning you come and you say, I need to receive Christ as my Savior. I know I've never entered in. I've never accepted that salvation. Or maybe some of you would go, you know, I'm the furthest thing from the kingdom of God. I'm pretty sure that when I came to church this morning, that the whole building was going to catch on fire just because I'm here. God's that angry at me. In fact, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I grew up in the furthest thing from a Christian family, but you're here and God is ready for you to receive his grace and, and be saved. Let's stand together and let's pray and let's give our love afresh to the Lord. Jesus, you know us and we don't want to pretend with you and pretend with others and it's so easy to get distracted and to get discouraged and to get caught up with so many things other than you. And we reflect afresh on your love for us, that you love us unconditionally with steadfast love that doesn't change. We see the beauty of that at the cross. And we choose to love you. We understand that love is a choice that we're not always going to feel. And we give you our hearts afresh. Jesus, thank you for being our savior. Thank you for being our best friend. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. We love you. We want to love you with our soul, our inner person. Jesus, we love you with our minds. We want our minds to glorify you in the thoughts that we think. With our strength, with everything that we have. Would you give us a greater love for our neighbor, those we live with and live close to and those that we just pass by in a moment, so easy to neglect to, to love others. Holy Spirit, we're inviting you right now to do a work that only you can. Would you speak to us? As we worship, may we respond to what you're doing in our hearts.